Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Jolly. Today we're in the Houses of Parliament, just a few hours after Philip Hammond delivered his budget to the House of Commons. Later, I'll speak to Alistair Darling, former Labour Chancellor, about what it's like to deliver a budget and what he made of both the content and Philip Hammond's jokes about his leader, Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, But first, I'm joined by Lucy Fisher, senior political correspondent uh, from The Times, Times columnist and Conservative peer Matt Ridley, and Labour MP Wes Streeting, member of the Treasury Select Committee. Welcome to you all. So, Lucy, one of the most striking things, if you look at the red book uh, for the budget, is that it's incredibly thin. There's, there's, there's literally not a lot in it. No, that's right. And in the context of, um, in recent days, uh, some Conservatives urging the PM to call a snap election, this certainly isn't uh, a massive pre-election budget giveaway, um, as far as I'm concerned. In fact, quite the opposite. L- announcing a rise in national insurance for self-employed, breaking a manifesto commitment mm-hmm. that was made in 2015, this really is not a pre-election budget. How, how, how difficult do you think that is politically breaking a manifesto pledge? I think it's hugely um, problematic for the government and also really for the Treasury team. The fact that they were so blindsided by how quickly this has unravelled, um, anger already emanating from the Conservative backbenches um, over this uh, omnic shambles uh, budget. Is that what we're calling it? Omnic shambles? Yes, National Insurance Contributions, NIC. Thanks, uh, we can thank the Lib Dems for that one. Um, I think the fact that the Treasury team didn't even recognise uh, that this was going to unravel and were so blindsided by the questions the lobby journalists immediately started asking them uh, after the budget uh, shows kind of big problems, um, bad political antennae there. And it, it, basically, the briefing. So straight after the budget, there's a briefing with Treasury f- officials and spin doctors. Journalists asked lots and lots of questions about all the numbers. And when asked, why have you broken your manifesto promise? They started saying, oh, well, you shouldn't look at the manifesto. You should look at the small print of the legislation they passed, which only applied to Category 1 of national insurance and not Category 4. And by that point, you think we've lost the... Uh, political argument. Absolutely and I think the irony um, here is that this is a budget in which uh, the Chancellor said he wanted to um, to tackle small print uh, in many kind of online retailers like Amazon the terms and conditions often buried in the bottom there if you sign up for a free trial uh, often you're kind of stung di- later down the line well this is a sort of small print sort of get out clause that they're trying to use now I think above and beyond that though it's very poor spinning for them to try and claim that by hiking national insurance, uh, even just for one class, that they've somehow honoured 
the manifesto commitment not to raise national insurance contributions um, is poor. They should have really appealed to the argument from fairness, um, the fact that there's a difference at the moment between employed and self-employed people. Um, I think it's been a pretty poor show. So let's bring you in here. Isn't the reason they feel they can do this because the opposition is so non-existent, I mean, on the economy, but just generally, that they feel they can break a manifesto promise on essentially putting up tax, and it doesn't matter. Well, if, if they think that, they may be very quickly disabused of that notion. This afternoon, we've had some incredibly powerful speeches already from Rachel Reeves, the former Working Pensions Secretary, who's my colleague on the Treasury Committee, former Shadow Chancellor Chris Leslie, particularly getting stuck in on this national insurance contribution rise because, uh, I mean, I've been talking to some of my Tory colleagues in the tea room. Uh, they are not happy about this, and quite rightly, because firstly, it doesn't seem like a very Tory measure, but whether you're a Labour voter or a Conservative voter, the idea that you would clobber people earning over £16,000 a year with a hike in national insurance, people who are self-employed, entrepreneurs, people taking the risk of starting their own business, um, it doesn't strike me as not only very Tory but also very fair. And Philip Hammond made the point about fairness, but let's not forget that people who are self-employed don't get things like holiday pay, uh, don't have employer pensions contributions. There is an added cost to being self-employed, and I think that's been completely overlooked today. And and Labour needs to be on the front foot on this because I think this is one of those things, uh, as Lucy says, that, that could very well unravel. And where um, working working together across the house, we could force a U-turn. Is, the, the problem with it is, although it might be making it fairer if people who are self-employed are paying rates of tax closer to those who are employed, it doesn't feel very fair if you suddenly are, and you personally end up paying more tax than you were paying before. People, you know, it, it's a hard sell to say, oh, but it's fairer because you're paying a similar amount to other people. Well, yeah, and, it, and if, if you don't follow the jargon, you don't know what Class 4 national insurance contributions are and you think it's high earners, it's people earning over 16, 000, just over £16,000 a year. So, for example, if you're earning £20,000 a year, you're paying 20 quid extra a month, and particularly if you live in a city like mine, London, 20 quid a month at the margins is a lot a lot of money and the difference be between being able to pay your bills or not. But even if you're earning, say, £35,000 a year, £45 extra a month, uh, and I don't think this was the right priority. I'm very surprised that Hammond's chosen to do this. He's, he's upset his own Tory colleagues, but I think it's deeply unfair and it looks like an attack on aspiration, an attack on entrepreneurialism, attack on small business people. Um, and I think that's a very peculiar thing to have done in a, in a Tory budget. Matt, what do you make of all of that? Well, I think uh, it, it, it's surprising how little money it raises is one point uh, just worth bearing in mind. I can't remember whether it's 170 million quid or something like that, which isn't a gigantic amount in the, in the grand scheme of things. And therefore, if, if there is going to be political pain for it, it seems there's not a lot of gain to, to, to be had with that. Um, I, I mean, I think, uh, j just correcting what Lucy said, I, I think he did set it out as a question of equalising the two and, and trying to get rid of the the uh, the uh, gap between uh, uh, employed and self-employed, which is, you know, clearly a, 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 a something that, that needs to be got rid of. But why does it, 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 it need to be got rid of, though? Because the argument is that if you're self-employed, you're taking more personal risk. You're, you might be more entrepreneurial, you're starting out a business or whatever. 
and you don't get all the be- added benefits that you might get from being in a job. Yeah, no, that, there, there are some arguments like that, but but you know, clearly, in some sense, it's possible to to uh, create a an incentive to make sort of fake self-employment here, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you could equalise these. You you know, you don't have to put up a tax to equalise these. Uh, he you know, he could have <laughs> put down income tax, or I mean, or national insurance on on employed people. And of course, there is the uh, class. Two, I think it was, that is going to be abolished anyway, um, which he's going to continue to abolish, and that will benefit these self-employed people. So there is some, um, uh, you know, it's not quite as bad uh, as, as the headlines make it sound. Um, uh, clearly, that's the, the the top line of the budget, but there's an awful lot else in the budget which is comparatively sensible. Uh, and on the whole, this is not a fiddly budget, and we've got used. To, I think this is your point you made about how thin the book is uh, we've got used to really quite fiddly budgets uh, and um, uh, Philip Hammond uh, seems to be able to get in his jibes his jokes which are quite good jokes actually uh, without actually having to spend money to get them in which was a slight tendency of George Osborne George, there was always a suspicion that George Osborne would, would decide on the joke about Boris or whatever and then try and find a, a tiny scheme to spend some money on just so he could uh, shoehorn it in. I mean, the jokes, I mean, one of the striking things I thought was that Philip Hammond does jokes. We, you know, all the previews were that Philip Hammond is a f- spreadsheet fill, dry as dust, he's boring, he's beige, he's like an accountant or a funeral director. And actually, he had some quite good jokes. Most of them was at the expense of your leader. I've been a bit surprised by Philip Hammond's comic timing, but I don't, I'm not sure if I were in Uh, Philip Hammond's shoes I'd have a lot to laugh about because going into this budget the structural weaknesses that underpin the economy that today's budget did very little to deal with it we've got um, sluggish growth uh, wages haven't kept up with prices so people are feeling a real squeeze in living standards Uh, the fall in sterling will drive inflation so further costs and prices are going to go up and what was really striking about today's budget not just from Philip Hammond by the way but from Jeremy Corbyn it seemed that there was no mention of Brexit the the biggest single threat to Britain's economy the biggest economic challenge facing the country and no one seemed to mention it it was like the elephant in the room but it's a whacking great big elephant and what I'm concerned about with with today's budget is that when it comes to dealing not just with the underlying weaknesses of the structure of the economy, but also dealing with the grievances that led to so many people, particularly in Labour heartlands, voting leave, there was nothing in there that addressed that. And when you look at the distributional analysis alongside the bu- budget, which, it, which shows the impact of uh, government tax and spending measures on households with different levels of income, it's, the chart is really clear. It's the poorest households that are absolutely clobbered, um, and only the richest, ten, uh, the only the richest ten percent uh, see any sort of negative effect on their earnings as well. There are lots of other high earners who are not feeling the pressure, uh, and I don't think that's very good news to those people that voted to leave largely because they felt left behind. Their wages weren't keeping up. They didn't see investment in their local e- economy and infrastructure. Nothing in the budget would deal with those grievances today. Lucy, were you surprised at the? total absence of... I mean, he mentioned something like, as we are uh, going through the process of leaving the European Union, we're building a better Britain or some other fan like that. But there was no other mention of Brexit at all. I mean, and in the uh, small print of the um, OB, the Office for Budget Responsibilities uh, numbers, they say they've made no assumption at all on either the divorce settlement that we have to pay Brussels to leaving or any future bills thereafter, which is billions and everybody assumes is going to be billions and billions of pounds, and yet no mention of it at all. I think it's worrying that the OBR didn't uh, factor in those assumptions or kind of set out um, scenarios uh, for those. But um, as for how surprising or not uh, it is that uh, Philip Hammond didn't mention um, Brexit, 
terribly much, uh, I think, as you say, just the wants uh, in his speech is, is not that surprising. I think it's a sort of, he's said that they're going to be ups and downs in the short term. Um, that's the sort of uh, reasoning underpinning this 26 billion war chest, uh, as we the media are calling it, or fuel in the tank for a long journey, as, as he's calling it. <laughs> Um, and why he hasn't sort of used the money that um, is, uh, is, is there, that slack in the system by uh, borrowing under shooting this year. Matt, there's been this slight suspicion about Philip Hammond that he's a, he was a Remainer and he was one of the senior Remainers still in the Cabinet pressing for a softer Brexit. Do you think you could have used today to try to address that a bit more by talking about a better Britain outside the EU and that well, sort of thing. There's plenty of such talk going on. I don't know which budget speech Wes was listening to, but it wasn't the one I was listening to. I mean, we, we, we heard about uh, revising growth forecasts upwards, revising the budget deficit downwards. That's a, that that uh, is only the, after the, the, the dire predictions immediately after the uh, No, not on, not, on the, not on the budget deficit they weren't. These, these, are, these are the changes. And remember, yeah, talk about those dire predictions. We're supposed to be having an emergency budget right now because of the profound <laughs> and an immediate shock that was going to happen to the economy and the stock market was supposed to be tanking and foreign direct investment was was uh, drying up instead of which we've got google and amazon and apple and all these countries in uh, companies investing uh, uh, and uh, uh, growth overperforming second fastest growing economy in the g7 uh, you know the as, it, given the mountain of debt that this country has and has got to get to grips with the economy is in remarkably good shape. Uh, and, uh, you know, f- whereas um, Wes is saying that, uh, uh, you know, uh, high earners are not feeling the pinch. Remember, 27% of the tax burden comes from the top 1% of earners. But there's a very big difference between seeing your taxes go up and feeling that burden if you're one of the richest 10% of people in the country compared to people on low incomes. But on 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 the growth forecast, I mean, my, my point is actually more about what's happening to the real economy. And when you look at, um, you know, look at the outlook and see what people like Sir John Major and George Osborne are saying, you know, what John Major effectively did last week was stand up Labour's economic attack lines, which was to say that the government is putting the economy on a different course. It will be a low low tax uh, enterprise economy, uh, tax haven off the coast of Europe, and we won't be able to fund the welfare state to the extent that we would have done. That was what Sir John Major's analysis was. Then you've got George Osborne saying the government's chosen not to make the economy the priority in the in the EU negotiations. So we haven't seen some of the uh, dire warnings that were put out during the heat of the referendum campaign. But that's not to say that in the in the medium to long term there aren't serious economic risks facing our country. Uh, and that the government shouldn't be uh, more concerned and more attuned to that. And for the government not to have the economy as a priority in Brexit negotiations is reckless and irresponsible. Well, the government clearly has got the economy uh, as a priority in, in uh, negotiations. And the trouble with Project Fear is that once you've done it once, you're, uh, and it's failed once spectacularly, it's not just got slightly bad, uh, it's got uh, better, uh, then it's tough to um, uh, sell that story again. Uh, and so you are on the back foot in trying to uh, persuade the, the, the country that we're facing ruin um, uh, from this. You know, there are still a lot of people, obviously, with a vested interest in uh, Brexit being bad news and are trying to talk that up uh, but the uh, the idea that uh, uh, we've you know in the in the eight months since the the brexit vote that we've hit any of these uh, uh, problems that we're expecting the economy is in remarkably good shape and particularly it's worth noting you know record employment uh, that is pretty spectacular 2.7 million more people in work than than 2010.
Um, while we're on the subject of employment, um, Lucy, one of the striking things is that people keep talking about this, and I think there's even discussions going on in the House of Lords about it this afternoon, um, the reliance on EU labour and migrant workers and uh, what the government is going to do post-Brexit um, about that to plug the gaps um, uh, in the in the labour market. There was a lot of talk about skills and uh, the new uh, technical T levels. Um, do you think all that will sort of will help address some of those long term problems in the in the jobs market? I think only on a very long term basis, and I think that that's actually what um, several cabinet ministers have already accepted. You know, David Davis has um, talked about the fact that it's going to be quite some time uh, until uh, British workers will fill the gaps left by um, EU nationals, particularly in some of the least desirable uh, sectors like social care and agriculture. And, and the it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. The least skilled. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, um, it's a tough one. Uh, you mentioned social care. There was a lot of expectation about what he would do for social care. Everyone accepts it's a massive problem and uh, what you're going to do about it. We essentially got the sticking plaster, didn't we? We run the long-term solutions, £2 billion over the next three years. It's interesting that's your take. I thought that was a bit more money. Well, than, it's a bit more uh, money, but it's still yeah. a short-term that's fix right. rather than a... And what, you have very expensive sticking plasters, <laughs> if I may say. <laughs> yeah. um, but in terms of the long-term um, solution, I thought one of the striking things was that he, was, he, he raised the phrase death tax again. And this was the idea that was floated under the last Labour government um, that you would pay it out of your estate, essentially, if you had very expensive um, social care, you'd pay it out of your estate. And it, it was cross-party talks which broke down and the toys basically ran outside with the idea and called it a death tax. There seems like there'd been movement back towards that, but he, he essentially killed that off today. Yes, he moved to get out in front of that and said that while this big review is going to be um, taking place um, over the next few months, um, that certainly won't be on the cards. Uh, again, that, I think that would be a very kind of um, non-conservative, non-Tory uh, idea. So I think he wanted to avoid that making bad headlines. But, uh, uh, you know, as it happened, presumably, Philip Hammond stood at the dispatch box today hoping that... Um, the, the you know the raid on self-employed investors and tax avoiders to fund 
this, you know, I think quite significant uh, funding for social care, for education uh, and for business rates relief. You hope that funding would be the, the top line, but in fact the, um, the National Insurance Manifesto um, commitment um, break is, is, is really going to be the, the negative that, that dominates tomorrow. Matt, do you, th- do you think that he could have been bolder, that he could, that the government essentially without a uh, functioning opposition, no sort of, uh, they've got the full sweep of the political waterfront, if you like, they can be bold, they could, instead of going back to phrases like death tax, actually come up with, even if it's deeply unpopular, but a sustainable long-term solution to issues like social care. The, the, the sort of minor nitpicky political games actually could be put to one side when they are in such a commanding position. To some extent, yes, I do agree with you there. I mean, I think we're in a right muddle over how we tax property. We've got uh, business rates, we've got uh, stamp duty, we've got, uh, um, uh, what's the other thing, anyway, you know... Uh, council tax. Council tax, tax, exactly. Tax. Yeah. Um, we've got all these different things, and they're all cross-cutting and creating perverse incentives and creating uh, horrible jumps when one goes up and the other goes down and so on. And stamp duty is a real drain on, uh, you know, transactions in the economy. To, to, to sweep all that aside and have a hopefully revenue neutral but simplification of the tax system on property with say a land value tax or something like that is the kind of bold idea that I think you know a Nigel Lawson or someone like that would be reaching for at this point uh, uh, and we're not yet seeing uh, the government you know there's still there's still a certain amount of sort of coalition mentality uh, here you know where you, you, you split, can't really do the bold difference uh, but politics. you know our, our tax system is horrendously complex and that in the end creates nooks and crannies for people to do uh, for rich people to do better than poor people out of of it as it were uh, and uh, you know a massive simplification in exchange for a, a lowering of rates has got to be the long-term uh, uh, bargain that you try and put to the British people but it is a bold one because always there's a loser or two. Wes what did you make of your your leader's response Jeremy Corbyn I mean is it, it's oh it is a tough gig for the leader of the opposition has to stand up and respond to a budget he's just heard although actually I think we had heard about almost everything that Philip Hammond announced beforehand, thanks in part to the Times uh, reporting on national insurance at the beginning of the week. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think Jeremy Corbyn was right to prioritise uh, health and social care to the extent that he did. The local government association says there's a £6 billion gap in funding by 2019, so today's £2 billion, uh, announcement won't go uh, anywhere near to funding that real gap. And I think we do need a slightly more bold approach to this. I would rather... Um, prioritise funding the living uh, over taxing the dead. I don't understand why um, the idea of taxing people's wealth after they've died, before they pass it on, is so heinous. I think that is a far better and more humane way of looking after our ageing population. Um, I would actually much rather take the politics out of this. Can you imagine if we had a a new commission to look at the future of health and social care with the likes of Ken Clark and Sarah Wollaston and Dan Porter sat around the table with people like Liz Kendall and Norman Lamb? I think that would be a a really powerful way of solving what is a long-term crisis facing the country. Um, One of the things I think Jeremy does need to learn to do is to think on his feet. As you said, the leader of the opposition is the toughest, toughest gig in politics, responding to the budget is the toughest bit of the toughest job. But I was really disappointed that given there was an open goal there on uh, on, on the increase in national insurance contributions for um, small businesses, self-employed people, and some of the other measures in, in the budget as well, like quarterly uh, accounting for small businesses. There were so many ways for Labour to show we're on the side of people who are 
working hard, setting up their own business, entrepreneurs. That's exactly the sort of territory Labour should be in. Um, he may have missed it today, but I hope Labour's message will be a lot stronger tomorrow. And he did um, manage to say breakfast when he meant Brexit, which could oh, be the only thing uh, that you know he's uh, remembered <laughs> if, for. If we had a pound for every time someone done that, we might we might plug their funding in the social care cap because everyone makes the Brexit breakfast uh, mistake. So given that, uh, you know, we always obsess endlessly about the tiny details of the budget at the time, what will we remember this for in a week or in a year's time? Or will we remember it at all? I think we'll... I think we'll <laughs> In a week's time, we will be talking about the clobbering of people through the increase in national insurance contributions. Tory MPs are really angry about it. Labour will eventually get on the front foot about it at some point in the next couple of days, I'm sure. And then <laughs> I don't we think can... it counts as the front foot if it, gets you, it takes you a couple of days, is it? Uh, we're, we're, it's a low bar. It's a low bar. Lucy, what do you think it'll be remembered for? I think we remembered as of the last spring budget that that wasn't really, as you say, we started off this conversation talking about how thin it was. Um, I slightly disagree with you, Matt. I think there were lots of sort of quite small, fiddly measures. Five million pounds here to celebrate women getting the franchise. Five million pounds there for for um, this and that. You know, the roads congestion scheme, which I'm pretty sure was recounting. Um, so uh, I don't think it'll be remembered for terribly much, apart from the uh, the shambles over national insurance. Uh, Matt, what do you think it'll be remembered for? Uh, I, th- I think national insurance probably will dominate the, 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 the headlines of this, but uh, uh, you know, obviously, it's the beginning of the social care conversation, which Wes has quite rightly said we need to we need to have. Uh, and and I think it it doesn't look like he's trying to do anything very drastic here, and he's getting ready for an autumn budget that may be a bit more radical later this year. And within a week or two, all we're going to be talking about is the trigger of Article 50, which uh, didn't feature at all in the budget. Uh, well, thank you very much. Um, Featured in my life last night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole new conversation all about. Uh, Michael Hesseltine. Well, I think we've covered everything you need to know from the budget there. Matt Ridley, Wedge Streeting, Lucy Fisher, thank you very much. Now that we've got an interview with Alistair Dyer, which I did on the Lord's Terrace just after Philip Hammond had finished his statement, I began by asking him, as a former Chancellor, what is it like when you step outside number 11 and you hold up that budget box before you head to the Commons and deliver all of your hard work to an expectant House of Commons. Well, the big thing that goes through your mind is this is watched by millions of people, not just in the UK, but across the world. People do watch it in other parts of the world because, you know, Britain has a, a resonance. Uh, and also the sense of trepidation. You're standing up, you're going to deliver a very long speech by House of Commons standards, about an hour. Uh, and, uh, you know, people are listening to every word. Uh, if you make a mistake, God, you'll know about it for the rest of your life. And it was striking, I thought, that Philip Hammond did jokes. We're not used to Philip Hammond doing jokes. He sort of played up this reputation of spreadsheet fill and he's a bit dull and all that. There were quite a lot of jokes in there. More than maybe we're used to in budget speeches. Yeah, there were. And, you know, one thing's changed um, since I did my budgets. Uh, up until my time, it was pretty uh, unusual for the Chancellor ever to make a joke. And then we never took a dig at the opposition because it was seen as, you know, unstatesmanlike, if you like. Uh, George Osborne rather broke that with political jibes, which Hammond carried on. And I guess he had a bit of humour, which is just as well, because frankly, and I say this as nice as possible, where he didn't have very much more to say. Right. So let's get into the um, detail of it then. Um, the thing that really struck me was the thing that wasn't it, which was Brexit. There was a passing mention at the beginning talking about the, our pro, the process of leaving the EU, but then that was it. And it's the biggest political thing which is happening. And there was no mention of it. And the only mention of all these, uh, the paperwork of budget responsibility is basically saying they've made no assumption of what we might still be paying or any 
divorce settlement bill. Well, that's the thing, of course. Um, Brexit was mentioned once. It is the massive elephant in the room uh, because the truth is until we know what sort of settlement or perhaps no settlement uh, that's achieved at the end of the day, you can't possibly forecast. So all these forecasts, which, by the way, haven't really changed, the timing of things have changed, but in substance, they haven't changed since the last autumn statement, and they're still pretty grim. Uh, We will not know until we know what the Brexit deal is, and that might be two years away, it might be five years away, who knows? Uh, And of course, it is upon that will depend the prosperity of the country for decades to come. One of the things which seems to have attracted the most attention, mainly because the thing that hadn't been briefed before was the changes to national insurance of the self-employed. And the Conservative manifesto in 2015 was explicit. We will not raise VAT, national insurance contributions or income tax. They're now saying that actually the legislation that they then passed only applies to uh, Category 1 and this is Category 4 and it was sort of a bit in the weeds. Do you think politically this is a problem for them? Well, look, if this illustrates the stupidity of legislating to box the Chancellor in, you know, when we were in power, we stuck to only two things, the top rate of uh, tax and the basic rate of tax. Once you start ruling everything out, you get into the ludicrous situation of saying, well, actually, we said we'd only put up, uh, we wouldn't put up class two insurance rates, but uh, we might put up class four. Well, who understands that? (laughs) See, you know, you create a massive problem. And this is a classic case. In policy terms, he's doing the right thing. Uh, because they have got out of alignment and, you know, the intention, the original intention has, you know, has been completely undermined by a change in the, the, the makeup of uh, the workforce. So it's the right policy response, uh, but he's got himself into a political difficulty because they've made this stupid promise they should never have made. And actually, with hindsight, they didn't need to make it. And from your point of view, if you'd been Chancellor, what would you have done differently? Because this feels a bit like sort of holding time, you know, wait and see what happens with Brexit. But what would you have done differently? Well, look, it's very difficult to do that because I go right back to 2010, where I always thought the then coalition's policy of having, of uh, of eradicating the deficit in the last parliament was hopeless. uh, And that, you know, the whole path it took with austerity, I think, has slowed the economy down. But, you know, where we are where we are, I'd have liked to have heard a bit more about infrastructure because we've heard, it's been talked about a lot, but in actual uh, terms of substance, particularly if you want to rebuild the English regions, which is a big economic as well as a big political problem. Um, I'd have liked to have heard far more about that. Obviously, he had to do more about the health service and long-term care. But one of the things I thought he might do was actually announce announce something that would have led us to a long-term solution for long-term care. Because heaven knows it is the big problem facing governments for a long, long time to come. And that was certainly the sense that we'd had, whether it was the winter crisis or more recently concerns about social care. We kept being told, wait for the budget. And actually there's another sticking plaster, there's a bit more money poured in quickly, but in terms of a long-term solution, that doesn't seem to be there. Well, I don't know what the long-term solution was. I mean, last week, uh, there were sort of um, resurrecting the death tax. Now, you may remember in 2010, uh, because you need long-term agreement, we and the Liberals and the Tories sat down with a view to, you know, looking at how do you fund the long-term care for the elderly. Now, you know, he seemed to have kicked that well under the grass, if not uh, said he won't be doing it. So the question arises for an awful lot of people now who've got elderly parents or people who are getting older themselves, who is going to pay for all this? Now, it's got to be a long-term solution. It can't be done budget to budget. It needs something more than that. And I'm sorry that's one of the things that he didn't even flag up an examination into it, as far as I could see. Uh, it's just been left hanging, and that, that's simply not good enough. If we look across the other side of the Commons Chamber and the Labour Party. There were lots of digs at the Labour Party. He described them as being like a driverless vehicle. Uh, He made a joke about um, Stephen Hawking abandoning him in black holes. 
what do you, th- how do you feel when you look at the Labour Party now? It wasn't, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't that long ago. You were in the, you were at the dispatch box delivering budgets. How do you feel now looking at the Labour Party? But like many of us, you know, I'm, I'm a mixture of despair and downright anger. There's a whole middle ground in this country who has no voice at the present time, whether it's in Brexit or in anything else. And, you know, our parliamentary democracy only works if you've got a government and you've got an opposition that is functioning. And it isn't at the moment. And the problem with some of Philip Hammond's jibes is, um, you, know, the, you know, they struck home. And that's always a problem for any political party. People say, yeah, you're right about that. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I have that mixture and, you know, it is not good for anyone uh, to be in that position where you have a government that, frankly, doesn't have to bother about the middle, which is why it's pitched so much to the right. Were you laughing along at some of the jokes? Oh, I never laugh at anything. <laughs> uh, just, just finally then, what do you think this budget will be remembered for? Will, will, is it going to be one... I know it, you know, it normally takes a couple of days to unravel completely, but do you think it will be largely forgotten because I mean, there isn't much in it? What do you, what do you think might, might stick? Most budgets, including some of mine, are forgotten. Uh, you know, people who just don't remember them, maybe the odd item. The, I think the bigger picture will be this autumn when clearly the talks will have started so you'll get some idea of the land that lie of the land. Uh, but my guess is for the next couple of years, the only show in town in British politics, British economics, will be Brexit. And that was the thing that was missing today? It's missing today, but it can't be missed for much longer. That brings us to the end of this budget special of the Red Box podcast. As ever, do subscribe via iTunes on your Android device, where you can also leave a review, uh, which will help us enormously climb the iTunes charts. Sign up to my morning email briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box. But for now, my thanks to Lucy Fisher, Wes Streeting, Matt Ridley and Alistair Darling. And for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand-new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl! Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.